0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and today I'm talking with Xiaomei Chen, author of Staging Chinese Revolution Theater, Film, and the Afterlives of Propaganda. Professor Chen, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. This is really exciting uh, to be given an opportunity to talk about contemporary Chinese theater and Chinese culture.
2: Yeah, uh, no problem. Thanks for being on the show. Um, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in uh, theater and film?
1: Yes. Um, I I was born in 1954, uh, the peak of socialist China, or what we call the golden period of socialist China. Uh, That's roughly between 1949, when the PRC, or People's Republic of China, was founded, and up to the uh, start of the Cultural Revolution, which is 1966 to 1976. So 1954, the year I was born, is considered so-called a golden period, when most of the Chinese people were still buying into the socialist agenda of making China a brand new society in which everyone is equal, and so on. So my parents um, actually were uh, well-known theater practitioners. Uh, my mom, in 1956, uh, played Ibsen's uh, Noro in Ibsen's play, A Dow's House. And that was a, a seldom-studied event of socialist Chinese theater, and when I gave uh, talks about that, people say, How did socialist theater become interested in, in Ibsen, so called bourgeois capitalist society, and so on? Uh, they didn't realize that um, Ibsen's the House was very early on introduced to uh, Chinese people in 1919, long before the People's Republic of China was established in 1949. So my parents uh, benefited from theater training in the Western style in the 30s and 40s, before the PRC was founded. And around 1956, my father became the stage designer for Ibsen's uh, Dolls house, and my mother played the lead role, and that kind of established their career in the People's Republic of China. So growing up in, in that family, I heard personal stories, uh, their excitement about theater, not just about Ibsen and Western plays and the shining on the stage in theater, but equally important, how they bought into the socialist agenda of socialist theater should work for the ordinary people. That's a very interesting dichotomy. You would imagine theater is elitist art, right? where educated people would be interested in. This is universal idea, both in China and outside of China. But in socialist China, they were trained to think, They work for the majority of ordinary people. So their theater, too, would travel to the countryside, um, perform in the factories, and try to um, popularize theater in the broadest space possible. So growing up in that theater family, I got this dual uh, complex uh, aspect of Chinese theater, which is on the one hand, is highly respected for great theater practitioners, On the other hand, they are not the elitist artists working for their own fame and uh, Oscar and awards and so on. They work for the majority of Chinese people. So I think that kind of dual aspect of socialist theater had an early imprint of my growing up experience um, in the 1950s. Uh, Then in 1981, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, enroll in Brigham Young University, uh, english uh, English degree master's degree in English literature then I switched to comparative literature at Indiana University and uh, then started to fall in love in comparative drama uh, as a, as a phd student and I was fortunate enough to study with professor Marvin Carson uh, I would say the greatest western scholar in Western theater and took five courses from him and was really immersed in Western theater and history then I realized why did it not really Uh, talk about Chinese theater. So I said, maybe this is my contribution. (laughs) So I wrote my thesis partially um, in theater, and uh, I just couldn't stop. Um, All my uh, following books are on theater uh, in contemporary and modern China. And
2: you grew up, uh, at least, you know, you said you were born in 1952, so that means you would have been 12 when the Cultural Revolution started, 11 or 12. Uh, What was that period like from the perspective of the performing arts?
1: Oh, I may be mis-spoken. I was born in 1954. So during the Cultural Revolution, I was 54 minus, okay. I was 12, 13 years old. Uh, So the ballpark is correct. I was in elementary school. And uh, true to um, my peers growing up uh, uh, in the 60s, um, my formal education stopped. Uh, in 1966, when Cultural Revolution um, started. Meaning we were roaming the street trying to be a Red Guards, and try to follow uh, Chairman Mao's great call to participate participate in the Cultural Revolution. And uh, uh, we our, our former right now. When I told my students, my former education is fifth grade elementary school in China. They were just what <laughs> now you're teaching as a professor? How did you do that? So that open that's a great opening for me to talk about the culture of the Cultural Revolution, the performance art of Cultural Revolution, and how uh growing up in theater department. I, I cannot imagine participating in theater practice uh, at the age of 12 or 13, but Cultural Revolution somehow opened the door because the real theater artists, such as my parents uh, were rounded up, um, were not allowed to perform all the films and the theater pieces or even books we uh, we, were, uh, we were educated in we were all banned as a bad stuff. The purpose of Cultural Revolution was to get rid of the old culture, which means everything that w- was produced before 1966. Of course, school libraries all closed. So we had free time to roam in the street. And because of uh, this idea, okay, my parents cannot perform. Why don't I perform? So in that early age, I organized my own performance group. Uh, called fashionably at that time as the Mao Zedong Thought Propaganda Team, which was a popular mass organization all over China uh, during the early part of the Cultural Revolution. So I actually created a stage for myself and for my peers. We just danced revolutionary uh, uh, dances and sing revolutionary songs and and feel like, oh, we're filling the empty space of my parents. I feel great performing. And then at the age of, I think, in 1969, still a teenager, uh, like the rest of my generation, um, we went down to the countryside in in Gangsdhuri Moscow to go down to the countryside to work with the worker peasant, and soldiers to reform us into the revolutionary youth. So I was in a northeastern farm, for about four years from 1969 to 1973. And I always wanted to perform. But meanwhile, I also learned performance uh, is not really that important. The most important thing is to do physical labor to be one of the ordinary people. At the first two years of my send down days in the Northeast, I truly believe in those laboring. And so um, later on, of course, like the rest of my generation, I became disillusioned about cultural revolution while we we're in the countryside. But still, there are some positive experience about performance and learning about labor and being with the ordinary people really had a positive effect on my growing up experience. So when I came to this country in 1981, I didn't feel all these challenges of you know doing well in graduate school in a foreign country all those obstacles and difficulties and challenges were not that bad in comparison to my early <laughs> years in the countryside <laughs> so the chinese always believe turn the negative into the positive right
2: uh-huh
1: yeah i think i stopped there <laughs> so
2: i'm so i'm so interested in this idea because uh, of of you know having once believed fervently in this uh, cultural revolution idea and then becoming disillusioned. But I get the sense, you know, reading your book and just in talking to you briefly, that there you do feel like there were some things about that period that were valuable and that you've kind of taken forward with you. Well, whereas I, I think some other people, um, you know, who experienced that period just feel like, you know, uh, good riddance, let's move on. Uh, let's forget socialism. Let's let's move on into the new capitalist China. But you seem to want to say, no, there's there's things that were, valuable about that time could you talk a little bit more about that kind of what are the things about the period in which you grew up that you feel like are still values that you uh that that you aspire to
1: well again uh i've written about this uh that is the duality of growing up in socialist state uh that the um how do i say it very uh simply uh that is to say uh there are negatives and positive in any traumatic period, right? Uh, in a difficult time during the Cultural Revolution, uh, um, when my parents were uh, criticized and were, um, were in kind of, uh, not really in prison, but um, were, were moved away from the normal life and I was alone at home. And when I talk about that experience, my students said, how come you guys are so successful? Isn't that trauma that you will never overcome the rest of your life? How do you survive that? Then I always had a, a little bit difficulty explaining to that. And they, they also are very correct in saying, you're not alone. Look at all these professors. Uh, we have that from the PRC that are now teaching us. They all have similar experience. How, how do your kind of people become successful? The only thing I can tell is children are very resilient. Mm -hmm. You can have traumatic experience, but the ability to to adapt the circumstances, right? Uh, It's tremendous. We usually uh, discount that. The other piece of that is also um, uh, when you didn't have a lot of opportunities, you appreciated whatever opportunities you were given and maximize it to its best result. I think in that regard, uh, my generation growing up, During the Cultural Revolution, it's not that we want to go back to that period, but we somehow became more adaptable, tougher in dealing with life challenges and somehow still thrive. Mm. The other piece of that, uh, which is a a little bit um, memory piece that is precious for me. When I first went to Brigham Young University in 1981, Uh, In a Mormon community, I was very impressed by the similarity between the Chinese society and Mormon society, the emphasis on the family, the kind of love I received. But it also gave me a few cultural shocks. For instance, they they call me the red commie. Um, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They said, you're the first or one of the first uh, lady from red China. How did you survive? So I said, well. Is that that hard? So I started talking what I told you just now. And they said, wow, they also, they only tune into the negative part. My mm-hmm. formal education stopped in fifth grade. My mom will move away from me. I was alone in the countryside for four years, extremely. They only suck into the negative and say, wow, how did you survive? That's horrible. They were not tuning the positive thing. Then a couple of my graduate student friends in the MA program English department said, Xiaomei. You should quit graduate school right now. It's very hard. It's hard to be a professor, hard to make money. You go home and write your memoir. You become a millionaire the next year. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, wait a minute. I can- If that's what they want to hear, to get excited, to hear about Chinese story, I'm not ready to write it. So <laughs> so I made up my mind, I'm going to have academic training. I'm going to improve critical analytical skill. I'm going to fully understand American culture. Then I'm going to write intellectual memoir about my growing up experience in China. And that I follow up in my uh, publishing and in my teaching, uh, both teach my students and also in my writing. The other book uh, that I published before, Staging Chinese Revolution, titled Acting the Right Part, actually go uh, more in-depth into the idea of my critical perspective of teaching China and writing about China, what are the pros and cons, what are the biases involved and what are the critical issues we need to pay attention to.
2: Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, this is a, a question I had in you, reading your book is, um, did you, do you make use of a lot of sources from uh, scholars in China? D- do you feel like there's dialogue between American-based scholars of Chinese culture and Chinese-based scholars of Chinese culture?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, I would say uh, two-thirds of my research materials in Staging Chinese Revolution in my other books uh, were based on Chinese scholarship. I I also, uh, I also want to draw attention to how much uh, wonderful scholarship that have been published in, in Chinese language, not just in in China, but in Hong Kong and Taiwan and other Chinese speaking uh, places uh, to make sure that my uh, reading and introducing of Chinese theater is up to date, uh, both taking into account the Chinese language scholarship as well as the Western scholarship. A few years back, I would say 10 or 20 years ago, Uh, The Chinese scholars were very much looking towards the Western critical models, such as postmodernism and deconstruction and postcolonial and so on, Uh, were very much interested in introducing Western scholarship. But now I think they're very much uh, informed and there are more challenges of Western perspectives of studying China. Therefore, I think the dialogue is always going on. The bridge has always been there between the sinologists in China and sinologists in the West conferences usually invite people from, both uh, inside and outside of China.
2: Hmm. Um, A word that comes up a lot in your book is propaganda. And I wonder if you might discuss a bit about uh, the the difference between how that word propaganda is used in China versus the idea that Americans might have of of propaganda.
1: Thank you for asking that great question. Um, In the beginning of my introduction, I did deliberately cited Western scholars' most recent scholarship on propaganda study to point it out that propaganda study now is an interdisciplinary, cross-cultural, and comparative approach of studying any culture. Uh, that is my strategy to fence off the idea that this is a book about Chinese propaganda, therefore why bother? There's always negative uh, uh, connection. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I front load the Western scholarship by saying this is a new field of study and the propaganda studies actually is a new field examining culture, society, history, literature, and everyday life practice. Uh, for example, uh, the new uh, propaganda study in, including a wide range of topics. Then I use Western examples such as biblical texts warning against spreading false message about God the Catholic Church dedicated institution to maintain its religious authority in the 17th century, Brazilian and North American slavery propaganda and its anti-slavery challenges. Remember, uh, the advocate and opponent of slavery system, they both have their own propaganda, right? Well, we in- including have- plays including plays, right? <laughs> the American Revolution, the Civil War, where plays, right? And then especially the American Cold War brainwash of democracy, uh, that is still uh, very much in play in our culture about a Cold War, a post-Cold War China bashing. Somehow socialist China or socialist country is nothing, uh, is everything negative. Uh, somehow that celebrate our American democratic system, which is always great, right? We've seen the recent challenge of American democracy in a very vivid way, right? Uh, So so basically, uh, in my introduction uh, by citing Western scholars' great work, I emphasize propaganda as a cultural practice that concerns nothing less than the way in which human beings communicate particularly with respect to the creation and widespread dissemination of attitude, images, and beliefs, and beliefs. Those are quotations from Western scholars. And to bring the propaganda study up front, how much we talk about fake news in this culture right now. How much propaganda we are seeing both ways (laughs) uh, promoted by uh, media. Uh, uh, I I think if you talk about propaganda right now, you cannot... uh, not talk about fake news in the last uh, one year or even four years, right? So propaganda is everywhere. So when I talk about Chinese propaganda, I'm just talking about one of the many cultural phenomena and practices that is relevant to our life. Our life, I mean the non-Chinese life. So... Now, you asked about the difference between American propaganda and Chinese uh, propaganda. That is a very good question, and I don't think I can give you a very quick and simple answer. But I would say, uh, in a ballpark, um, China has, as we all know, a kind of one-party system. So propaganda is, of, of course, under the state control a lot. Uh, American, we have a democratic society, a multicultural uh, party, a multi-parties in competition. Uh, but we run the danger of um, fake news again, right? Uh, too many freedom to express whatever you want, wherever you want, however truthful it is, as long as I can p- get people to be on my side to listen to my voice, right? So you can always balance the positive and negative in any given society. Uh, In China, you have one-party system, stronger control of what you can really voice as individual voice and media freedom. Uh, In America, uh, I think the internet and everything else in our culture or a total free democracy also become uh, problematic as to what do you listen to and how much you trust so-called propaganda practice broadly defined.
2: Yeah, you, you have a wonderful point where you say, You know, it might seem strange that China has these uh, plays and films and musicals that glorify the founding of the nation and kind of serve to legitimate the regime. But, of course, the U.S. does the same thing. You know, you can think of 1776 or more recently, Hamilton, as a kind of American version of a revolutionary uh, opera, right?
1: Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So this is to uh, point out to uh, non-Chinese readers or to general readers and all my students and and graduate students in studying modern Chinese culture in general, that um, there's always uh, something about we are the best, the other cultures are not as good, so we can feel more comfortable celebrating us, right? Um, So... um, So if we have a Chinese counterpart of 1976 or Hamilton, it's propaganda. But if we have that in our culture, uh, Hamilton is still hot, but uh, 1776, how many people really remember it, right? Uh, So our culture is highly selective as to what is to be remembered and what is to be celebrated, what is our greatest tradition, what is the other culture's greatest failure. So part of my teaching career is to open up my students mind and have a multicultural perspectives to really understand our culture better by studying the culture of the others. A most recent example is uh, we hear every day Oh, American in the pandemic, American new cases uh, two days ago was uh, 80,000. Oh, that's a great, that's a 40% decrease since whatever, right? People are tuning every day about American pandemic. But when I told a friend of mine, oh, um, China had 14 cases in the same day. And yesterday, there's no new cases in China. And the day before, uh, in China, which has one fourth of world population, we only had 10 new cases and they are all imported from outside people returning to China. My, my friends said, Xiaomei, are you kidding? Can that be really true? See, this kind of news does not filter through our culture. When you hear in all the major uh, news outlets about the uh, China news, it's about suppression of Hong Kong, it's about, uh, uh, about uh, Xinjiang, whatever, which are true. I mean, we need to report that. But how how many times have you heard about the report of how China controlled pandemic, right? If you hear something, it's highly oppressive society, people have no freedom, blah, blah, blah. But what about the success of Chinese uh, <laughs> controlling or taking care of the pandemic, right?
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: So My my friends in China, I I follow a couple of friends uh, on Instagram who live in China, and they post pictures of like, just went to an eight-hour karaoke session, or like, this is a video from my dance class. (laughs) I just get so jealous because it really does seem like everything has returned to normal in China. I mean, in terms of, of the pandemic, and we're nowhere near that in the U.S.,
1: that's right. That's right. So that in that way, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to talk to you today. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so you also edited the Columbia Anthology of Modern Chinese Drama, which I have a copy of, and it's a, a great resource. And I'm just curious, when you teach those plays that you included in that anthology uh, to your students, especially undergraduates who might not have ever studied China before, how do they react to those uh, texts?
1: Well, they love it. <laughs> Thank you very much for having a copy of that. Um, so when I teach uh, Chinese drama uh, at UC Davis, is a general education course, meaning, you know, for 180 credit, you have to take X number of general education, right? Meaning you're, you're supposed to... Uh, uh, learn about non-Western culture and theater and art, visual culture and all that. So this class uh, is pitched at general audience who, who may not have any interest in theater, may not have any interest in China, but may just be curious, right? Just step into a little bit and see how boring it could be, right? <laughs> but it turned out uh, in my last uh, 30 years of teaching uh, theater, modern Chinese theater or modern Chinese drama class, both at Ohio State University, where I taught uh, 15 years and at UC Davis, which is my 17th years of teaching. I, I taught this class um, every year. And it's amazing how some of those, a uh, very few students got into my class because, oh, they're theater major. They really want to learn about this, right? If they're theater major, they take a Shakespeare class in English, but not Chinese theater class with me, right? But how uh, very quickly they got into those great uh, plays of China. For instance, uh, there's a play called Thunderstorm. You have the anthology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, 1930s play by Cao Yu. And students were amazed by how you change the character's name. It became a play of Ibsen or Chekhov or whatever, right? It's so westernized uh, in terms of um, steeping to the western dramatic uh, tradition. And it's very accessible, actually, to them after i have explained the cultural background um how is uh, is really influenced by ibsen and Chek- chekhov and on the other hand is really combining the dramatic structure of western plays with contemporary Uh, historical Chinese realities. That's why you have some mentioning of workers' strike. But most important is a great love story, right? You have triangles of love uh, one after the other. Uh, So for me, teaching modern Chinese drama, first and foremost, is to teach the importance of understanding Chinese culture and politics and how Chinese theater reflect that culture, that history, but also add something artistically to the world theater and world culture. So my students usually came out of it and totally changed their perception of China. And some of them became Chinese minors or even Chinese majors and started taking Chinese language classes and so on. So that is really my favorite class to to teach, even though I taught other classes like fiction and film and so on, which I also enjoy. But drama, I feel the most satisfying uh, sense of fulfillment because students somehow stumbled into my class and really learned a lot.
2: Uh, A big focus of your book, Staging Chinese Revolution, uh, is contemporary depictions of the kind of uh, great Chinese communist heroes of the 20th century, Um, which is interesting to me because, I mean, contemporary China looks very different than what Mao would have wanted for China, for example. So, Um, how has the kind of shift toward a more capitalist economy changed how these stories are told?
1: That's a great uh, question. Um, And uh, I think we can maybe take uh, one example. Uh, In the book, I trace uh, theater and film and especially television drama of so-called great leaders from Mao Zedong uh, to Deng Xiaoping, for example, right? Uh, Mao Zedong, uh, as some of uh, us know, founded the PRC in 1949 and was considered the great leader of Chinese revolution. And then he started the Cultural Revolution and China was in chaos uh, during the 10 years. And he died in 1976. And then... um, His widow, Jiang Qing, was arrested and put on public trial and became a scapegoat of Mao's mistake. And China supposedly entered a new era. And Deng Xiaoping, uh, the top leaders uh, of the PRC um, that was uh, exiled from power structure during the Cultural Revolution and criticized by Mao as uh, going against socialist principles, uh, came to power again after 1976, and became the so-called great leader of the new era. Therefore, the greatest leader, maybe even greater than Mao, because Mao gave us liberation and Deng Xiaoping gave us happiness. You can see the comparison, right? Mm -hmm. Revolution and happiness, are they equal? They each gave us something. Without one or the other, we wouldn't have what we have. And here you see a perfect combination of um, how Chinese... uh, Performance art was instrumental in building two very different regimes of political period, the Maoist period and the anti-Maoist, if I can use that simplified word, of Deng Xiaoping's time. Deng Xiaoping is pushing China, especially in the economic realm, towards capitalist model. And Mao, during the Cultural Revolution, was trying very hard to prevent Deng Xiaoping from going the so-called capitalist Right, So if Mao were to wake up uh, from his grave, he would say, Deng, what are you doing? That's why I mm-hmm. strike you down during the Cultural Revolution. Actually, that dialogue actually materialized uh, in some of the stage production. That is the uh, direct dialogue between Deng Xiaoping and Mao questioned. Deng Xiaoping said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm not happy, right? But of course, during the performance, that power was censored. And you can, you, can, you can only learn that stage dialogue when you trace the different versions of the original text of the performance. So to answer your question uh, more directly, I think um, according to the official ideology, celebrating Mao and Deng Xiaoping are the same thing. Because we're set celebrating the basic idea of Communist Party, owning Communist Party, only socialism can save China. Mao and Deng are still socialist leaders. They are great in different period, right? And remember, Deng Xiaoping has a slogan, China now is not capitalist, it's socialist China with Chinese characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. So so the media and official propaganda and the performance art who carry out and collaborate this uh, official propaganda have an ingenious way of working within the gray areas of official culture. Okay, we can celebrate Mao, but when we stage Mao uh, on silver screening film or in real stage or in television drama, we emphasize how Mao was always taking care of ordinary people was always against corrupt officials, right? And that's an indirect criticism of the corrupt officials now in China, right? And then uh, when they staged Deng Xiaoping in film and in play, they emphasized how Deng truly had a Chinese people in mind. Therefore, he was challenging Mao. Therefore, he was in trouble uh, during the Cultural Revolution. But Mao is always correct and Deng is correct because they both are leaders of the great communist party. So the propaganda, my bigger point is always have gray areas and performing artists are very uh, talented in working between those gray areas, working with the official culture and carve a stage of their own, trying to be both politically correct, uh, even commercially successful, but also having their stage so that they can be theater and film artists so that they can perform.
2: That's so fascinating. So even in works of theater and film that we would think of as being propaganda upholding the regime, there's still room to use that form to kind of level a subversive message about contemporary China.
1: Exactly. That's the main point of my book. For instance, in my retelling of Deng Xiaoping, um, I basically uh, traced um, how since the 1990s, especially in the celebration of uh, Centennial, there were 100 pieces of performance from television, drama, film and stage. Uh, and it's so safe and politically correct to celebrate Deng Xiaoping's life, right? Right. So it goes from his early year in Europe when he was converted to Marxism uh, in his teenage years to the late 1920s, 1920s, uh, 1929, when Deng Xiaoping supposedly led a great uh, uprising uh, in Jiangxi. And then all the way uh, to uh, the 60s uh, when he was trying to give a better life to Chinese peasants by promoting some capitalist ideas to Cultural Revolution when he's criticized and exiled by Mao and to the latter part of Cultural Revolution when Mao realized the economy was in a mess, Deng Xiaoping is capable, let's bring him back. And Deng Xiaoping did some capitalist stuff, Mao didn't like it, kick him out again. Then after death, Mao, Deng Xiaoping came back and carried out his great economic reforms. Right, So all these are official line of celebration of the great leader Deng Xiaoping. But if you read reading between lines, it's also criticism of Mao's policy, right? Deng Xiaoping did something right and Mao did something wrong. So the mistakes goes to Mao who is dead, but Deng is also succeeded in carrying out Mao's socialist agenda to make contemporary China one of the biggest economic power, right? So you can for For all those performing art, they can erase some problematic uh, part and make it coherent in celebrate what is the current policy ah uh, wants to celebrate, celebrate. And in this book, I also want to uh, find out the blind spot. Of those performances, and this is through my research, and this this is why I understand the critical and scholarly research of those performance are will make us understand more the complexity, the richness of performance art in China. For instance, the 1927 uprising, which in party uh, history and official account of Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping was the leader, right? But if I compare those numerous uh, films and television drama and so on first I realized how come none of them uh, depict the very scene of the uprising when Deng Xiaoping was present. So I started to trace um, other accounts like personal memoirs who was participant of that 1927 uprising. And it started to surface the fact that Deng Xiaoping in the three crucial moments during that uprising, he actually left the scene and went back to Shanghai. And later on, he told people it's just too dangerous to be there, (laughs) right? So in my my research, I I try to highlight, of course, propaganda performance tells a great story that is PC that serves the propaganda purposes. But if you're a good researcher, you compare those 100 pieces with the even officially published memoirs, you realize the mentioning of he was not at the scene. But why did propaganda performance skip that? When uprisings happening, someone else was leading it and Deng Xiaoping disappeared. Then later he come back and celebrated as the great leader, right? So I think that um, that says uh, why uh, we have to be uh, uh, intellectually and critically uh, aware of what performance culture can tell us about the blind spot, about Mm -hmm. what normally we don't understand. So that's that's part of uh, the Deng Xiaoping chapter is trying to show.
2: And, and that's something about contemporary China that I feel like a lot of people in the West don't understand too, is that you don't have to be a trained academic to be able to find these little inconsistencies in the official narrative. So, you know, a lot of people in China may uh, say that they agree with the official version of the history of the past 100 years, but they know that there are things that are missing or things that have been rewritten. So it's not like they've just... Uh, opened up their brains and downloaded the official uh, history.
1: Exactly. I totally agree with you. So uh, one of the problems, challenge for my work is that I don't always talk about audience reception to this pr- uh, propaganda pieces, right? Um, that takes another research project just to talk about, can you do reception studies or audience studies and talk about people's reaction to these Yes, but it takes years of personal interviews. And even if you have people in front of you talking about what they think, they may not tell you what they really think, right? So that's a huge challenge about um, how to assess the response or audience reception to these uh, uh, to this uh, performance event. Uh, that's a longer project and that needs to be studied. It's not something we should neglect. But in my books, I try to point out what seems to be obvious and uh, challenge those things, point out performance studies is important in understanding Chinese culture. Meanwhile, realizing the complexion and the difficult challenges it involves, such as how people really react to those performance pieces.
2: Mm. Uh, one figure that you write about that I thought was particularly interesting, and I may be pronouncing his name incorrectly, is Shen Dushu, who was the uh, the, the leader of the Communist Party before Mao, uh, before the PRC was established. Um, and, and you write about him, uh, criticizing elements of Stalin, uh, Stalin's regime in the Soviet union that were then replicated in, uh, Mao's regime in, uh, the PRC. So how has he been depicted in contemporary portrayals and, and what are the sort of subversive messages being communicated through those portrayals?
1: That's a great question because um, I think in this culture we probably heard about Mao and Deng, but very few people heard about Chen Duxiu. Uh, Chen Duxiu has a separate chapter in my book precisely because the rise and fall of Chen Duxiu's image in performance art since 1949 present another uh, interesting uh, picture of how performance art changed our perception of Chinese history especially an important part of that, which is a party history. Uh, As you already mentioned, uh, Chen Duxiu was an early leader of the Chinese Communist Party. He was actually a co-founder of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921. But um, he um, was unsatisfied with the Soviet Union's uh, constant directions about where the Chinese Revolution should go. Uh, they should collaborate with the uh, KMT, the Nationalist Party, because the Chinese Communist Party is too small. It will never grow on its own. You should collaborate with the uh, Nationalist Party to make it stronger. Chen Duxiu didn't like that. Chen Duxiu said, you're you're in a faraway country. How do you understand Chinese society? Why do you direct me uh, what to do? So... He But he had to follow the Soviet directive because the uh, the whole global socialist movement were really uh, taking the Soviet Union as its lead. But as Chen Duxiu um, watched what happened uh, with Stalin, the rise of Stalinism in the 1940s, the purge and so on, he started to worry about what does it mean to Chinese Communist Party, which was very much modeled in the model of the uh, Soviet Union. So he started to warn that if the party does not carry out a socialist democracy within the Chinese Communist Party, we would have another Stalinism occurring in Chinese society that will bring tremendous disaster to the Chinese revolution, which turned out to be true. You think about later history of cultural revolution, which is a big purge, right, on the part of Mao. And the socialist Socialist democracy basically. We think the party is basically nonexistent. existent Now, uh, Chen Duxiu ha- having that kind of a history, uh, Mao later on uh, took over as the first leader of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1930s during the Long March, and um, so in the after the after 1949, the fo- founding of the People's Republic of China, uh, when China uh, produced is. Um, Uh, epic revolutionary dance and song epic The East is Red Chen Duxiu was portrayed in this 1964 grand revolutionary epic as the incorrect leader who brought Chinese revolution to failure in order to bring up this idea, the cult of Mao, that only after Mao came into power during the Long March that Chinese revolution began to be successful. So Chen Duxiu was introduced to the general public, uh, the popular imagination, as a counterpart of Mao to show the failed leader in order to emphasize how wonderful we have this great leader. Mm. Now, uh, fast forward to the death of Mao, 1976. Chen Duxiu, as I mentioned in the book, was gradually surfaced was not too bad a leader. He founded the Communist Party. He he. Without Chen Duxiu, we wouldn't have 1921, founding of the uh the Communist Party, and Chen Duxiu's sacrifice. Uh, two of his sons uh were executed by his enemies and so on. Actually, one was ex- executed, and he sacrificed a lot. But still, because the party. Uh, history has not officially reversed Chen Duxiu's case uh, as a bad person. So the performance of Chen Duxiu was kind of neutral until in the 1990s when the party history was rewritten and fully acknowledged Chen Duxiu's uh, leadership in early, uh, uh, in early history of Chinese uh, Communist Party as an implicit kind of balance off of so- so-called a great leader Mao and implicitly criticizing Mao's mistakes as well, right? So in the 1990s, as my book pointed out, there's a tremendous interest in television drama and uh, in movie and in some stage uh, production to recast Chen Duxiu as the earliest and perhaps the greatest, most insightful leader of the Chinese Communist Party. Again, I read it as a uh, the uh, complexity of performance art, how it is constantly in flux, how it is constantly changing according to the contemporary change of politics and the state affair, and how theater artists uh, really tap into the greatest talent to collaborate with the official culture so that they will have a stage to perform. Meanwhile, to be creative uh, in the dramatization of important uh, leaders so that they will be an audience interest in those great figures and great event.
2: Finally, um, for listeners uh, to this podcast who have interest in Chinese drama and would like to learn more, uh, what are some great Chinese plays that you would recommend that they read?
1: Well, I'm so glad to ask this question, because in my anthology, I would recommend two. One is Thunderstorm, 1934, that I already mentioned. This is the most accessible. You don't have to know a lot about Chinese history. You can get into the love triangles. Uh, the revenge and guilt and uh, and all that great stuff um, in the Western tradition. Uh, but my introduction, um, which was um, aimed at general uh, readers who are interested in Chinese theater or just interested in China, as well as a beginning learners, graduate students and uh, undergraduate students, and other scholars in China field who may want to teach theater but didn't have a good introductory material. So the introduction will situate... Uh, Thunderstorm in its historical context, in terms of what is 1930s China was like and why thunderstorm is so great. And how is that uh, compared to Ibsen and Chekhov and so on? So that's the most accessible play I would recommend. The other one that is both accessible because of great drama, as well as more culturally specific uh, in terms of learning about history and culture of modern China is Jiang Qing and her husbands. Uh, Jiang Qing, as some of you know, uh, is Mao's widow. Uh, who was put on trial and was imprisoned for many years after the death of Mao and then committed suicide. Uh, and he, uh, she was regarded as a scapegoat of Mao um, Jiang Qing was a bad woman who led Mao to a stray. Mao listened to Jiang Qing. That's why the Cultural Revolution. Jiang Qing was a key leader of the Cultural Revolution. Mao's mistake is listen to this vicious woman, right? We're all Mm -hmm. familiar with this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this kind of thing. So this is a great way of connecting Chinese culture to all the first lady stories of this culture and elsewhere. And also talk about women's story. And how woman's ambition and frustration uh, at the top of political power and, and her sorrow as being the first wife of Mao and also being the scapegoat of Mao's um, Mao's uh, mistakes. and and so that's that's an easy way of getting. Uh, to learn about the early history of Communist Party started with the 1930s when when Jiang Qing, who was very famous um, actress in Shanghai. This is not a performance history student can uh, can learn. And she was famous in his 1930s uh, uh, playing the role of Noro, uh, Ibsen's uh, Dao's house. And that year of Shanghai theater was known. This is real history, not in the play. It's in the play, but it's reflecting real history of theater in 1930s. Mm-hmm. So Jiang Qing was a famous actress uh, in in Shanghai. Uh, made her career as Chinese most successful, beautiful Nora who rebelled against her uh, uh, her bourgeois husband, and then she, she somehow played that role in real life and went to Yan and was attracted to Mao as a great proletarian leader and called it Mao and became uh, his wife, <laughs> right? So you're learning the woman's history as well uh, as the uh, Chinese party history. You learn Mao's story about how uh, he had at least three wives and his treatment of them. I don't want to give away all the suspense of the play. <laughs> so I think that's, <laughs> that's a great play to talk about the achievement of drama in 1994, when this play was written. By the way, this play was never performed uh, in the mainland China, mm-hmm. just for the obvious fact. It was uh, toured in Canada and the Bay Area uh, by a Cantonese-speaking theater company from Hong Kong. That's a very interesting theater interest, uh, history we cannot really get into. But my point is that these two plays will give a very good balance about what's accessible as the best drama uh, before 1949, and what is the best combination of the accessibility and the in-depth learning of Chinese culture uh, in the theater uh, history after 1949 in the socialist China period?
2: And finally, I'd like to ask, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's the next project we can expect from you?
1: Oh, <laughs> um, I have maybe two projects. One is near completion Completion. Um, is actually completed. Um, it is a history of 20th century uh, Chinese drama from the beginning uh, in the 19 teens uh, all the way to present time. It divides into two parts. The first part is in the three founding fathers of modern Chinese theater uh, who studied in Japan and America and who uh, founded modern Chinese theater in the Western style, that is in the tradition of Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare, that spoken drama, which is quite different from the traditional operatic theater that has singing, dancing, acrobat, and so on. And then the first part starting... uh, with the three founding fathers, the Western education—they're trying to combine Western dramatic technique into uh, modern Chinese history and art and create something new. That the second part is an uh, overview or introduction of the PRC theater scene uh, from the nineteen uh, from 1949 up uh, to 19 up to 2010, I guess. Um, Focus on different genres of socialist theater. So that's the first project that is done. Um, The other one is really, uh, you know, when I go to bookstore and saw those books, uh, something like um, 50 Best uh, Greek Theater uh, Plays um, or uh, Selection of Shakespeare or something uh, like 50 Best Pieces in Certain um, European Theater. I always want the book to be on a shelf, maybe called 50 Best Modern Chinese Drama in this translation, right? (laughs) That gave you the synopsis of play, the reception, the uh, uh, the history, and so on. So that one is in the uh, planning period. Uh, I want to collaborate with the best scholars in theater studies um, and uh, try to produce a more general book so that Chinese theater would be on the regular bookshelves about world theater, uh, more easy access, uh, like a handbook thing, uh, 100 Best European operas, something like that, equivalent to that. So that's my my other project.
2: Well, you'll have to let me know (laughs) when those uh, projects are published and we'll have you back on New Books in Performing Arts.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs)